You are listening to the podcast, Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burn Center at Vanderbilt Regional Burn Center in Nashville, Tennessee. The website that I have is www.burndoc.com. There's a variety of educational offerings there as well as links to blogs and other podcasts uh, that um, I run. The topic that I wanted to mention that uh, have a discussion about today was the idea of perioperative evaluation and management of a patient who has cardiovascular disease. Often a patient will come in into our unit and we're making rounds on the patient and, and I'll put the residents through some questions almost immediately regarding anybody who's been admitted uh, to our ICU or our floor is that some basic understandings of what's the patient's past medical history. And the reason why we're doing that is not that we're trying to be, you know, focus on a bunch of irrelevant minutiae that doesn't really affect the patient's outcome is that a lot of the things that we do in, in critical care and in surgery nowadays is trying to reduce perioperative risks of the patient. When you look at the operations that we're doing today versus the operations we did, say, you know, 50 years ago, it would seem that what we're doing is reasonably dramatically different. Um, we're doing, though, very similar operations through much smaller incisions using longer instruments, but with cameras. But we've seen really dramatic increases in um, patient survival and, and reductions in complications. Um, and it, sometimes it, gets seem, it seems to get lost in a lot of discussions about MRSA um, and, and the like. But it's uh, important to realize that what we're trying to do when we walk up to a patient preoperatively and we identify that they need surgery, and the surgery isn't immediately life-threatening, we have time to evaluate the patient and, and, and do some workup, is we're trying to reduce the risk to that particular patient. Uh, I'll, I'll tell the, the residents a lot, it's like trying to get some background information. It's almost like we're trying to cheat on a test. Uh, not that I would ever condone something like that, but what we're trying to do is try to get as much information as we can about the patient so that we can try to make the anesthesia and the surgery and everything about surgery, both before and after, as safe as we can for the patient. And a large part of that is what's called perioperative uh, risk reduction. When we think about an operation, an operation is really nothing more than a controlled injury. From a autogeny standpoint, from a nice biological perspective, our bodies weren't designed at some point to be uh, um, laid down supine on an operating room table and have some surgeon cut them open. Uh, it's not The body is not really able to differentiate that from an assault versus a fall or what have you. What have you. And as a result, the body has very predictable responses to uh, an injury. That injury could be an unplanned trauma, such as a fall or an act of violence, or that injury uh, is, is most often in the form of a surgical procedure. Bart Chernow in uh, Archives of Internal Medicine back in 1987 uh, talked about the surgical stress response as a graded neuroendocrine response to surgical trauma. The bigger the threat or the insult, the bigger the neuroendocrine response. It's a direct correlation between the magnitude of the stress response and the perioperative pathophysiological response, and this has been well established. The stress response follows a very reproducible cycle of events. Consequently, when a patient falls off the curve, this typically represents an exceeding event such as sepsis. And often we'll talk to this uh, in the ICU, we talk about what's called physiological narrowing. And by that is, is that a 20-year-old can take a, a stress much better than an 80-year-old. A 20-year-old is able to adapt better than the 80-year-old. Now, in response to tissue injury, the anterior pituitary secretes uh, adrenocorticotropic hormone, growth hormone, prolactin, and endorphin. The posterior pituitary secretes arginine, uh, arginine vasopressin, and the adrenal secretes cortisol and epinephrine. Again, these are very well-delineated uh, physiological uh, responses to an injury. Following an injury, we have 
a very uh, predictable neuroendocrine response that result in very predictable, uh, uh, for lack of a better word, phenotypic presentations or, or physical manifestations. In response to injury, the anterior pituitary will excrete adrenocorticotropic hormone. It'll, the anterior uh, pituitary will produce growth hormone. The anterior pituitary will produce prolactin as well as endorphin. Now, the posterior pituitary will secrete uh, arginine vasopressin, and the adrenal will uh, secrete cortisol and epinephrine. All of uh, these very predictable and reproducible events basically occur to ready the organism for the fight-or-flight response as well as mobilization uh, of energy stores. So, so what are the things that you see? Well, you can see analgesia, you have hypercoagulability, conservation of fluid, mobilization of metabolic substrates. Now, that all seems to make sense. Again, if you're looking for a uh, organism that's been injured or having surgery, analgesia uh, certainly uh, makes sense if uh, you're being injured or harmed uh, in a fight or surgery, hypercoagulability if you've been uh, uh, a victim of trauma and you're bleeding, conservation of fluid, moving uh, fluid from one area to the next uh, to improve uh, hemodynamics or oxygen delivery or even preservation of blood, and mobilization of metabolic substrate is, is, is key, particularly when we talk about uh, the production of cortisol. Now, what are the physiological uh, responses to all these neuroendocrine changes? Well, you'll see tachycardia, tachyarrhythmias, hypertension, myocardial ischemia, congestive heart failure, hypokalemia, hypomagnesemia, infections, hyperglycemia, hypermetabolism, fluid and electrolyte shifts, altered immune function, and, and, and certainly hypercoagulable conditions. And it really doesn't take much of an imagination to see how those physical manifestations can result in complications for our patient postoperatively. I mean, tachycardia, myocardial ischemia, um, you know, hypercoagulable circumstances uh, result in things like DVTs, uh, myocardial ischemia, as, as well as we can thrombose off uh, blood vessels of the heart and, and result in things like pulmonary embolism, all the electrolyte shifts that we see uh, in the perioperative and postoperative state. Now, the idea behind a lot of what the uh, modern anesthesiologist does is they try to attenuate this stressed neuroendocrine response. This is some of the idea where uh, you'll hear anesthesiologists talk about preemptive anesthetics, uh, trying to uh, abrogate or blunt this neuroendocrine response uh, by actions that they take both in the operating room, but as well as things they do both uh, preoperatively as well as postoperatively. It's a well-known uh, question, but you certainly need to know that the highest risk for a patient of perioperative complications is the first three days postoperatively. And I keep harping on this, but it's important to keep in mind that the surgical stress response is reproducible programmed response to surgical stress falls a very predictable time course. Epinephrine is known to precipitously rise around the time of emergence from an anesthesia, peak, and then uh, return to normal levels, usually by 12 hours after surgery. Norepinephrine levels rise about the same time, but once it peaks, it will plateau for potentially three days and then return to baseline levels. The surgical stress response is so predictable that deviation from these set patterns can be utilized as evidence of uh, intercurrent events, such as infectious complications or myocardial ischemia. Now, there are about 27 uh, million non-cardiac operations in the United States each year. Of those, about one to one and a half million will be on patients who have known coronary artery disease and about an additional 3 to 4 million in people who have three more risk factors for cardiac disease. So uh, clearly this is something that we uh, spend a great deal of time worrying about uh, in both the preoperative and postoperative period. Uh, Anesthetic-related rela- uh, complications of anesthesia have dropped precipitously over the past uh, years. Um, it's diminished from a rate of 1 in um, 1,000 for an anesthetic-related uh, risk to approximately 1 in 
400,000 cases over the past 20 years. So that's a really dramatic decline um, in the uh, um, overall anesthetic-related risk. And one of the things that um, they, they try to uh, um, put forward as the understanding the patient's entire risk. Often as surgeons, what we are looking at is what's the surgical stress from a particular operation, but that is not really defined the overall risk. The overall risk is really a product of the patient's disease that they're bringing to the table, to the heart disease, the cerebral vascular disease, or the diabetic, plus the surgical stress. Those two elements really define what our risk is. So we really need to try to explore the patient as to find out what the patient's disease state is. Not just the fact that they have pancreatic cancer, but that they also have heart disease and bad kidneys. And by exploring those, we can get an overall sense of the patient's overall risk. The ASA, the American Society of Anesthesiologists, uh, breaks down patients into uh, basically uh, five classes. And they're conveniently labeled class 1, class 2, class 3, class 4, class 5. I have seen this on exams, even my critical care uh, board exams. Class 1 patients are patients who have no organic disease, and they're estimated to have a mortality rate between 0 and 4%. So these are healthy patients. Why are they having surgery? Well, this might be the healthy patient who is having a hernia repair. Now, class 2 patients are defined as those who have organic disease without a functional impairment. Okay, class 2, organic disease, no functional impairment, and they have a mortality rate between 0.5 and 2%. Class 3 patients are defined by organic disease with definitive systemic involvement but uh, producing functional impairment. So class 3 has the functional impairment, and they have a mortality rate between 5 and 10%. So now we're starting to get into some real significant risks. Class 4 patients are defined as having severe, life, uh, severe disease that is life-threatening and have a mortality rate of about 75%. Class 5 patients are defined as those as morbid and on entry to the operating room and thus are expected not to survive the operation. I've certainly seen uh, those um, in my time. In addition, they break these down as to whether uh, uh, it is emergent or elective. Emergency status conveys an increased risk of two to three times the baseline risk. So if you have somebody who is class 3 emergent and we say that they have a baseline risk of between 5 and 10%, the fact that it is an emergency operation will increase that risk two to three times that baseline. So if we go conservative, we're looking at, say, between uh, 10 and 20% uh, operative mortality. Now, there's also uh, the magnitude and duration of the surgical stress um, will uh, also uh, uh, be relevant in the amount of surgical stress uh, that's produced. Cataracts and other peripheral procedures produce no discernible uh, stress risk, but other procedures such as bladder and lower abdominal procedures produce lesser response than those in the upper abdomen uh, or thoracic procedures that produce greater stress than the upper abdominal procedures. Over the years, we've had a variety of commonly used uh, risk criteria. Um, the Goldman criteria was uh, something I learned when I was in medical school, and that's then migrated the Detsky risk factors and then the Eagle risk factors. And we'll go through some of these, and we'll see where they are similar in identifying patients who are at risk uh, from uh, perioperative complications and anesthesia. Now, over the years, um, uh, we've uh, gone from uh, Goldman, Detsky to the Eagle uh, risk factors. Um, the... Um, Eagle risk factors uh, in 1989 identified that major risk factors included age greater than 70 years of age, history of angina, a uh, history of, of ventricular ectopy requiring treatment, uh, diabetes on therapy, and Q waves on EKG. Um, 
these uh, criteria, the EGLE criteria, have been adopted by the American Heart Association and are incorporated into their algorithm for the preoperative assessment of the patient with heart disease for non-cardiac surgery. Now, the most recent version of the AHA, uh, American College of Cardiology Guidelines, divides uh, the risk factors into three categories. The major risk factors include unstable coronary syndromes, such as an acute or recent myocardial infarction, uh, or a Canadian anginal uh, class 3 uh, or 4, decompensated heart failure, significant arrhythmias, uh, which include high-grade AV block, uh, symptomatic ventricular arrhythmias, uh, supraventricular arrhythmias with an uncontrolled rate, and severe valvular disease. The intermediate risk factors include uh, uh, Canadian anginal class 1 or 2, previous MI or pathological Q-wave, uh, compensated congestive heart failure, insulin-dependent diabetes mellitus, or renal insufficiency. Minor risk factors include advanced age, abnormal EKG, other than sinus, uh, low functional capacity, which is they define as an inability to climb one flight of stairs with a bag of groceries, history of stroke, uh, or uncontrolled systemic hypertension. The importance of functional capacity is best demonstrated by the fact that patients classified as high risk but who are asymptomatic can run for 30 minutes daily, may need no further evaluation. Now, the guidelines further stress that completely sedentary patients without a history of cardiovascular disease but do have other risk factors may need further preoperative evaluation. So it appears that a cutoff of about what's called uh, METS, four metabolic equivalents of activity, uh, represent the transition from poor functional capacity to acceptable functional capacity. And this is something that uh, you might see on a critical care uh, exam. I, I have. That four METs is approximately equivalent to doing light housework, while doing more than four METs is equivalent to being able to walk on the ground level at a speed of about four miles an hour. A question that comes up frequently is what to do with a patient who's had a, re a recent myocardial uh, infarction and uh, requires surgery. How long should we wait to uh, make the procedure as safe as we potentially can for the patient? What I was taught, at least historically, was that, um, that within the first three months after an MI, the risk of a subsequent perioperative procedure was about 30%, and that uh, risk fell to about 15% at the time interval was between three and six months, and then fell to about five or six for those who was greater than six months before the pr uh, proposed procedure. So what happened is somebody uh, had a myocardial infarction. We certainly tried to wait six months uh, prior to uh, taking that patient to the operating room for an elective procedure. In 1983, Rao and colleagues published in Anesthesiology uh, reevaluated the risk relationship and concluded it was closer to 6% for those whose uh, uh, recent MI was in the last uh, three months. And that risk fell to 2%. Uh, for those between three and six months, and was less than 2% for those uh, after six months uh, following the MI. What is missing from that evaluation is the um, uh, overall uh, functional status uh, of the patient. This gets into the meds. What can they do? Because if somebody uh, is uh, three to six months out or even six months out but uh, have a, a severe LV dysfunction, uh, they are not going to be as good as somebody who has had an MI more recently and has had uh, excellent uh, preservation of uh, function. Um, the recommendations are that in case of an urgent or life-threatening uh, condition, the clinician should proceed no matter what the time frame between the MI and the proposed surgical procedure. If it is purely elective then and can be postponed safely, then delaying the case until some point after three months uh, should certainly be considered. Now, if the case is elective but waiting is not a good option because the patient has something like a resectable tumor, then consider uh, proceeding for those with return of good functional status or angiography for those who are remaining questioned. And also, it's also fair to point out that uh, the stress uh, 
uh, stress response um, induced by some procedures is less than the stress of driving to have the procedure formed in some cases. So keep everything in context as well. The next question to be asked is, we have a patient who needs surgery. What type of testing should be initiated? Now, previously, the American Heart Association, the American College of Cardiology recommended that people get a thallium or dobutamine stress echo as a risk assessment tool for patients either at risk or those scheduled to have vascular surgery. Um, Now, this really hasn't been um, um, validated as as being uh, truly efficacious or or not. Uh, To be truly useful as a preoperative screening tool, such tests uh, must have a high positive predictive value to avoid canceling cases and exposing patients to needless uh, additional tests. In fact, the positive predictive value of each of those tests, the uh, thallium uh, or dobutamine stress echo, is quite low uh, with a positive predictive value of less than 25%, making uh, none of the tests quite optimal. If a preoperative cardiovascular assessment test is indicated, then a dobutamine stress echo is probably the more useful of the two tests. It gives you a good assessment of baseline cardiac function as well as uh, how well the heart will perform in response in the, uh, in the response to attack a cardia. And furthermore, uh, the response to dobutamine more closely mimics what the heart will do in regards to heart rate, blood pressure, and inotropic changes that are seen in the postoperative period. Well, what do we do? To, how do we uh, prepare our patient uh, for surgery uh, um, who... Uh, um, has uh, ischemic heart disease. Well, certainly we should continue taking their inotropic or antiarrhythmic medications up to and including the day of surgery. Uh, aspirin, if being taken for angina or cerebral vascular symptoms, can be continued throughout the perioperative procedure without significant increased risk of um, uh, either perioperative bleeding or transfusion requirements. Uh, given the inherent risk of some surgical procedures, the surgeon uh, should be involved in decision to continue uh, or withhold the aspirin perioperatively. Beta blockers should not only be continued throughout the perioperative procedure, uh, consideration for initiating beta blocker therapy should strongly be entertained for patients uh, if the patient is not already on that class of medication. Uh, a study by uh, Mangano and colleagues shown that patients who receive perioperative beta blocker have better long-term outcome. And I know somebody's going to email me for that reference. It's Megano and colleagues in the New England Journal of Medicine, 1996, volume 335, pages 1713 to 1720. This is a landmark study uh, that uh, looked at uh, cardiovascular risk reduction in patients who were having elective non-cardiac surgery and how their uh, perioperative cardiac risks were reduced uh, with the addition of beta blockade. If this sounds like something new to you, like I said, it was only... 12 years ago, uh, which is uh, the typical snail's pace, which a lot of things in medicine seem to um, uh, become adopted. Another one was a Polderman's uh, study, also in the English Journal of Medicine, and that was in 1999, volume 341, pages 1789 to 1794. This study looked at 59 patients who received uh, beta blockade compared 59 who did receive beta blockade, I'm sorry, to 54 who did not before vascular surgery. All patients in both groups had more than one risk factor and, and all had positive dobutamine stress exams. A reduction in mortality from 17% in the control group to 3.4% in the treatment group was realized. In addition, a reduction of non-fatal MIs was achieved uh, from 17%. It was reduced to zero. Now, both these studies were pretty aggressive in their use of beta blockers. Um, We had a a critical care fellow here years ago, and it was always kind of entertaining that a patient would be on a beta blocker, and you'd see their heart rate at, uh, you know, low 100s, and... um, 
Dr. Fisher would, would comment that the patient was just because you were on a beta blocker didn't mean that you were beta blocked. And a lot of these studies will drive the heart rates down to areas that make some clinicians um, um, and, or anesthesiologists uncomfortable. Uh, clinicians presently beta block patients intraoperatively with short-acting agents and uh, begin the longer-acting agents uh, once the uh, period of rapid fluid shifts has started to subside after surgery. Uh, a recent concern has been raised by an association in, uh, in a retrospective analysis of beta blockers when used across a broad spectrum of uh, risk strata. Additional studies are clearly uh, needed to clarify whether these agents are indeed safe in what could be considered uh, low-risk patient populations, but clearly seem to be beneficial in those who are identified as high risk. Now, the use of shorter-acting beta blockers may be more advantageous, particularly in patients who have um, a history of asthma or COPD, uh, and therefore the longer, excuse me, the, the shorter-acting agents might uh, seem uh, a little bit better tolerated in those uh, patient populations. That way, if you start them on a low, excuse me, on a short-acting agent, you can see how they respond, and if they don't have a good response, you can discontinue that beta blocker rather than using a longer-acting agent. Now, alpha agents, an example, clonidine, have been shown to be beneficial uh, in this particular population, but at present, no trial directly comparing beta blockers to alpha agents have been done, and there's certainly strong evidence for use of the beta blockers. This also brings into the idea of statins. Everybody is doing research nowadays on uh, statins, and there's been uh, some retrospective analysis. Patients who have had surgery while on statins have uh, enjoyed a... Uh, um, an association between prior statin use and a lower perioperative cardiac risk event. So if a patient can tolerate a beta blocker, I would certainly put them on a beta blocker. If they can't, then consider clonidine and possibly the use of statins. Another talk on perioperative uh, cardiovascular risk reduction would be complete without talking about uh, valvular heart disease, uh, aortic stenosis. This certainly could be a real pain in the neck in the postoperative period. Uh, especially when the valve area is uh, really reduced and stenosis is uh, designated as critical. You really need to un uh, have both the uh, um, valve area, which is uh, a marker of the severity of the valvular lesion, and you also need to know the valvular gradient, which is a marker of the left ventricle function. You need to have both of those two uh, pieces of information. Now, uh, all too often people believe that a regional anesthetic would be safer for a patient who has... Um, a severe aortic stenosis, um, um, and uh, this would not be accurate. Your anesthesia colleagues will let you in on that. Uh, the profound, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, you get a profound combined preload and afterload reduction with spinal and epidural approaches, and it makes an inherently dangerous for patients who require high diagnostic, uh, excuse me, high diastolic blood pressures. Regional anesthetics uh, can uh, result in a, a pretty uh, marked and rapid profound changes in hemodynamics, and therefore a, um, a general anesthetic may be able to provide a more stable uh, circumstance. Now, we mentioned earlier that keeping these patients on their inotropes and their antiarrhythmic medications would be a good thing. And given the magnitude of information we have about the beneficial effects of beta blockers, uh, it would seem uh, not wise uh, that if we remove the beta blocker, it can induce potentially life-threatening arrhythmias. So all patients who are chronically on beta blockers should continue them throughout their perioperative period and should always take them on the morning of surgery or the sip of water, which is generally considered less than 25 milliliters. Now, in patients, we've already talked about uh, how much we like beta blockers, but uh, patients who cannot tolerate the beta blockers due to the fact that they demonstrated complications such as wheezing um, or a decrease in cardiac performance, calcium channel blockers are a reasonable class of agents, diltiazem being most commonly used because of its lower negative anotropic effects. Now, there are newer antiarrhythmics 
uh, amiodarone, for instance, have limited roles in primary th- therapeutic agents um, due to their side effects, but do have um, an uh, important role, particularly amiodarone, in maintaining sinus rhythm after cardioversion of patients who have had SVT uh, or atrial fibrillation of the rapid ventricular response. The role of magnesium, uh, though it's very popular, remains somewhat unclear. It, it appears uh, that high plasma levels of magnesium are required for it to function as an antiarrhythmic. But given its low cost and low rate of toxicity, it seems prudent to maintain most patients in the high normal range during the perioperative period, uh, that is, their serum magnesium. Uh, ventricular tachyarrhythmias are managed in the same perioperative uh, period as they are uh, for other patients. Uh, the ischemic etiologies must be considered and electrolytes must be corrected if a patient in a postoperative period starts having ventricular arrhythmias. Ultimately, defibrillation and potent antiarrhythmic may be required, uh, particularly for the uh, ventricular arrhythmias. And we know all this from ACLS. Now, the other situation that is a challenge is the patient who uh, comes in for their surgery and they uh, uh, have a chronic um, uh, bradycardia. Uh, certainly in those circumstances, uh, aggressive use of beta blockers is probably not a great idea. Um, electrocautery devices, now we, we talk about temporary pacemakers. Uh, they may be required during the perioperative period. Uh, some experience, excuse me, uh, some patients will experience bradycardic arrhythmias perioperatively and most common of the nodal variety. And patients who require pacemakers at baseline will require these pacemakers to be identified and evaluated within six months before surgery. And that's all seems very prudent to you. Uh, electrocautery devices uh, used during surgery uh, can reprogram or disable some pacemakers. So a clear understanding of the make and type of pacemaker is required, as well as access to experts with pacemaking um, with the ability to uh, program the pacemaker. Now, um, uh, automatic implantable cardiodefibrillators must be turned off immediately preoperatively and then reprogrammed immediately postoperatively. If this isn't accomplished, uh, electrical devices used in the operating room, such as, again, electrocautery, can reprogram the device or cause the device to deliver shocks despite ongoing normal cardiac rhythms uh, and potentially causing fatal arrhythmias. So that's something that we clearly don't want done. So it's good to have your arrhythmia specialists uh, evaluate and interrogate these post-make, these pacemakers in the immediate preoperative as well as the immediate postoperative period and be available um, to um, interface with the pacemakers as well uh, and, in, and potentially in the uh, intraoperative circumstances as well. Now, up to now, we've talked about the things that seem reasonably obvious to reduce the uh, stress response, particularly the use of beta blockers and uh, things that we typically would think of to decrease the neuroendocrine factors. But there are uh, things such as temperature control, regional anesthetics, uh, and central acting beta-2 agonists uh, that can attenuate the uh, stress response to uh, surgery. Now, hypothermia has been shown to be a stimulator for the secretion of catecholamines. Uh, uh, if you work in or around an operating room or an anesthesiologist, you know that there's been a huge movement across the country uh, as in the prevention of hypothermia intraoperatively. There's a lot of bad things um, that um, hypothermia in regards to coagulation factors, uh, regarding infection, um, uh, hypothermia does have uh, some positive utility, or it is good, particularly in uh, post-cardiac arrest circumstances and, and people with traumatic brain injuries. There is re- active research in those areas. But hypothermia will stimulate the secretion of catecholamines, uh, which is something that is counterproductive when we're trying to do perioperative risk reduction. Uh, when patients were randomized to routine attempts to maintain temperature, 
uh, and convective warming. Those patients who received convective warming had epinephrine levels that were barely changed from baseline, whereas the control patients experienced almost a tripling of their epinephrine levels following uh, cooling. Now, convective warming also reduced the magnitude of the rise seen in norepinephrine levels from a threefold rise to a barely a 20% increase. So they went from going up 300% uh, to just a 20% increase in norepi levels um, with uh, maintaining uh, euthermia, not allowing the patient to get cool. Now, furthermore, a study by Kurtz and colleagues demonstrated that maintenance of a temperature of 36.6 versus 34.7 was associated with a threefold reduction in infectious complications and a reduction in length of stay. Wow, that seems like a pretty big number. So let's read that again. That uh, keeping the temperature, this is having patients cool at 34.7 versus warm at 36.6. Those patients who um, um, were not allowed to get cool had a threefold reduction in infectious complications as well as reduction in length of stay. The reference for that is uh, Kurz and colleagues, New England Journal of Medicine, 1996. Um, volume number 334, uh, pages 1209 to 1215. This is an editorial comment. It's interesting to me that, you know, a lot of the things we're talking about now as far as beta blockers and risk reduction and uh, preventing from patients from getting cooled uh, are things that there seems to be a lot of initiatives around the United States currently in uh, uh, improving patient safety. But a lot of these papers, when you look at when they were done, they were done 10, 12 years ago. Just an interesting observation. Now, we've talked earlier about beta blockers have been studied for their ability to reduce the surgical stress response. Clonidine, as we also mentioned, has been studied in both IV oral and dermal patch preparations, and it does appear to be effective in all forms. There was a study done by Dorman and colleagues. The effects of clonidine on prolonged postoperative sympathetic response appeared in Critical Care Medicine, 1997, volume 25, pages 1147 to 1152. And in this uh, paper, the use of perioperative clonidine compared to placebo reduced the magnitude of the increase in perioperative plasma epinephrine and norepinephrine concentrations by almost 50%. These reductions were correlated with improved perioperative heart rate, blood pressure control. Clonidine also was shown to be, have beneficial effect in the uh, quantitative systemic review published in anesthesia and analgesia in 2003 by Stevens and colleagues, as well as a um, uh, paper by Wallace and colleagues in anesthesiology in 2004. There is research going on that looking at other alpha-2 uh, blockers, such as dexamethamidine, may have similar uh, beneficial properties. That is our uh, brief review on the topic of perioperative risk reduction and regarding cardiovascular disease. Um, a lot of information in a very short period of time. Uh, my name is uh, Jeffrey Guy. My website is www.burndoc.com. I'm an associate professor of surgery at Vanderbilt uh, University Medical School in Nashville, Tennessee. Thank you and appreciate your download.